Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? How many people have gotten sick this fall yet? Raise your hand if you've gotten sick. All right, so like a week ago, I started to get sick, and so this morning I am very nasally. I apologize about that, and I have a little army of Ricolas up here that at any moment I may put into my mouth uh, to make sure that we get through. Um, So this morning's passage comes out of chapter 9 of uh, the book of Acts, so if you're not there, you can turn to that right now. Uh, And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 19, so that first part of chapter 9. And the passage, really, uh, if you look at the heading, it's called The Conversion of Saul, something along those lines. That's what it says in my Bible. Uh, But this passage really is about the conversion of Saul. Saul going on to become Paul, uh, who we all know and are familiar with. Throughout the book of Acts, and I would uh, maybe even argue the entirety of the Holy Scripture, I do not know if there is a more dramatic, stunning, uh, miraculous conversion event than this one that we read in Acts 9. It's an incredibly dramatic event. Again, sometimes easy to just kind of read over knowing, oh yeah, okay, so this is Paul and, and, and we know a lot about him. But when you really stop and think about it, it's incredibly dramatic. It's this really stunning event. Uh, so out of this conversion event, the Christian church has given Paul, uh, who is a missionary, he's a prolific writer, he goes on to write a, a large part of the New Testament uh, and really becomes this cultural architect in a lot of ways of first century Christianity throughout the Mediterranean. Through his writing to churches, spending time with churches, he really kind of develops this culture of Christianity in that first century. So very, very, very important section of scripture that we read this morning. And I think it's, uh, it's dramatic for a couple of reasons. It's dramatic, one, because, um, I mean, the words of Jesus are spoken in this, and it's, uh, and it's uh, the, the uh, Saul goes blind for a portion of it, and so there's a lot of drama just in the story itself. But it's dramatic because Paul, uh, or Saul in this time, really is the last person that you would think would come to faith. If you read the Acts, uh, the book of Acts up to this point, you didn't know the remainder of the story. You were just reading the Bible from page one all the way through, and you didn't know what was coming next. You would read chapter seven and chapter eight and read about Saul, and you'd think to yourself, there's no way this guy comes to know Jesus. There's no way this guy comes to know Jesus, and yet he does. So it's this really, really dramatic event. Uh, Saul is a complex man. Here's just a a little bit about who he is. A man born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, He was Jewish by culture and religion, studied under the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, but he also held Roman citizenship. So probably because his dad was a Roman citizen, he himself held Roman citizenship, which then gave him uh, special privilege, special authority within the Roman world, even though He was Jewish by culture, Jewish by religion. Other than that, we don't know too much about his history, but we do meet him first in chapter 7. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on chapter 7. It's the stoning of Stephen is the story that's in chapter 7. And Saul is the Pharisee who's uh, almost as as if he's presiding over this event, this uh, incredibly brutal event of uh, of Stephen being stoned. All the coats are being laid over the lap of Saul. He's tending the coats of the people that are going to go and stone Stephen. So that's where we first meet him. We see him as a Pharisee in this event presiding kind of over the activity of stoning Stephen for uh, for his proclamation of the gospel. 
Then in chapter 8 we read, and the scripture says that Saul continues to persecute the church. The, the words in the scripture say, destroying the church. That he's now a man on a mission to destroy the Christian church. And by chapter 9, Saul's continued offensive against the church moves beyond Jerusalem. So that's where we find ourselves reading into chapter 9. That it's now going beyond Jerusalem, that Saul's on a mission to, get, to make sure that the Christian movement does not spread beyond the uh, cultural and religious center of Jerusalem at this time. So that's where we pick up. Verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 9 says this, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Saul, again, our main character kind of in this story, he's still breathing threats of murder against the disciples. He goes to the high priests of the time, and he asks for letters that he can go up to Damascus, the city, and, uh, and within the churches in Damascus, look for Christians in this time, find who those men and women are who are following Jesus, bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can be put to death. So he goes to the religious council of the time, the high, the high authority, and says, give me letters, give me the authority to go up to Damascus, into the churches up there, find people who are following Jesus Christ so that I can bring them back and we can prosecute them, we can put them to death in Jerusalem. Damascus uh, is, a, is a city that's about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. If you look at a map, it kind of sits in this area that it would mean that if... Um, if Christianity could get to Damascus, then the entire world of Mesopotamia would be open to the Christian faith. It really was the gateway for the Christian movement to move beyond this area. And so it seems pretty obvious that Saul's recognizing this and saying, if I'm going to stop the spread of Christianity, I need to go to Damascus and put, it, uh, put a stop to it up there. While he's traveling to Damascus on the road, it says that a blinding light appears causing him to fall to the ground. And words are spoken, and this is what it says in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you can imagine kind of in this stunned sense of, uh, of maybe uh, not knowing what's going on, coming up from the ground, he looks to the sky and he says, who are you? And the reply comes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the scripture says that the men traveling with him are amazed as they heard the voice, but they did not see anything. Saul, who is now blinded by this event, is radically transformed in this moment by his interaction with Jesus Christ. Radically transformed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. And so he enters the city, he makes it to Damascus, and it says that he spends the next three days without food or water. Spends the next three days without food or water. And you got to imagine, what was he doing in that three days? What was he doing in that three days? Probably just replaying all of the ways that he had persecuted the church, the people that he had put to death, the things that he had done. And now he's a radically transformed man. Meanwhile, God, in, in kind of another part of Damascus, comes to Ananias. Ananias, uh, being somebody who we have not met yet, we meet him here for the first time in chapter 9. It says uh, Ananias is a devout disciple in Damascus and probably one of the leaders in the church in Damascus at this time. And God comes to him and gives him a vision, gives him instructions to find Saul, to lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And Ananias immediately at this is nervous, nervous about this proposition. 
You see, the reputation that Saul had built for himself as one who hates the church, as one who will kill Christians, had gone before him. People in Damascus knew the name of Saul. And so he immediately has some resistance and questions God. God, are you sure that you want me to do this? Saul, the Saul, that guy who's coming here to kill people who are proclaiming Christ. So there's some resistance on the part of Ananias, questioning God's uh, motives in this. But God assures Ananias that all will be good. And he says this in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God immediately puts a quietness over the fears of Ananias and says, Go, this man is a man that I have chosen to bear my name. And so Ananias faithfully and obediently goes to Saul, finds him in the city and lays hands on him and prays this in verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18 and 19, and as with many stories in the book of Acts, this very, very dramatic encounter kind of ends rather abruptly by saying something like, scales fall from the eyes of Saul in this moment. He is then baptized and he begins to eat food. It's kind of how it ends. Very abrupt finish to this. Clearly, Luke, as he's writing this, is interested in communicating the journey by which it led to the conversion of Saul. Not as much important what comes afterwards, but this incredible journey, the conversion event that leads to the changing, the transformation of Saul. This story is a loved story because I think it is dramatic, because it's a miraculous conversion because it's compelling to read. But I think it's a beloved story as well because it parallels a lot of our lives. I know when I read this, when I knew that I was going to preach on this, there's this kind of uh, personal attachment I have to this story because in a lot of ways, I was like Saul in my high school career. Before I came to know Jesus, I was the guy in high school who wasn't always kind to Christians and in a lot of ways would single out Christians and refer to them as being soft or prude or whatever, but it was my way to kind of persecute the church. I felt like I was kind of like Saul when I read this, now as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And many of us may have a very similar experience, that you lived a life like Saul beforehand, but God has come to you and has radically transformed your heart. And so it's a compelling story, not only because of the story, because of the way that Jesus interacts, but it's compelling because our lives parallel the story in a lot of ways. I think it is important, though, to remember that there are other main characters in this story. So we read this and we can get hyper-focused on what's happening in Saul and the fact that he becomes Paul and kind of a hero of the faith, but there are other characters that are, uh, that are referred to in the story. There are other characters that are doing things. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the three main characters in this story and draw from them one thing that we learn about God from each of these characters. All right? So the first one is easiest. We'll start with Saul. All right? Obviously one of the main characters. Here's what we learn about Saul. Or here's what we learn about God through Saul. We learn that God is radically inclusive. God is radically inclusive. 
Now, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I had uh, a, a very promising career in theater. It's funny. You guys can laugh at that. Was, <laughs> you guys actually thought I was serious with that. Uh, as I said in the first service, it was very promising until I decided to go to the fourth grade. <clears throat> um, no, there, how many people have heard of the Missoula Children's Theater Company? Is that, am I saying that right? Something along those lines? Okay, so some of us. I did some research on this group. They are, uh, I think, I believe it's a nonprofit, and they um, travel around to different elementary schools and maybe middle schools, or I'm, I'm not sure, but they travel around to different schools, and they show up on a Monday and um, with a certain play in mind, and they cast all of these children in the play, and then by Saturday or Sunday, the play happens, and so they help direct this play and put kids into place, and uh, it's actually a really, really cool way that uh, our kids kind of, some kids get a first step into acting. Well, I was in third grade at Midway Elementary on the north side of Spokane, and uh, the Missoula Children's Theater Company came to Midway Elementary uh, wanting to host the play The Wizard of Oz, and I thought, I'm a thespian, I should be in this play, this is great, this is good for me. I think the, the idea is that as they come, each grade kind of has a pretty typical part that they would play. So the kindergartners do this, and then the first graders generally are these characters, and all the way up until the sixth graders or the fifth graders, they probably are the ones that are memorizing lines, and they're the, the Dorothys and the Tin Mans of the world. I was, <clears throat> I was in third grade and uh, went out for this play and, um, you know, was hoping to be casted as a regular third grade part, which in the first service I said was an Oompa Loompa. That's not at all the same story. Apparently they're called munchkins. That's maybe why I wasn't very good at acting. Um, I believe that's probably what most third graders were doing, was kind of in the munchkin chorus. I was a terrible actor, though. And I, could, I couldn't sing, and I was not good, and so they decided to make me a flying monkey, uh, which, if you know the story, is a very, very critical part of The Wizard of Oz. Most of the flying monkeys were kindergartners, and so most of the costumes were built for kindergarten-type frames. I was a bigger, you know, third grader, and uh, I can remember this, this really sweet lady who was a, the casting director, whoever she was, the costume person, just trying to fit me into this flying monkey costume that was clearly built for a kindergartner, and I'm in third grade, and it was not working, and she couldn't zip up the back, and so she had to put a safety pin back there to make sure it was closed, and then she kind of instructed me very nicely to say, hey, maybe just kind of be towards the back of the, of the, <laughs> of the stage, and don't turn around ever. Just kind of keep, keep facing forward the whole time as you're running through so people don't know. Crushed me. I'll never be in a play again. <laughs> um, uh, no, this lady was very, very sweet, and uh, theater was not going to be a part of my story or a part of what I would do, but, but here's what's beautiful about this. No kid was off limits for this theater company. Every kid had a part. Even the third graders who were no good and couldn't be a munchkin like myself, they would find a part for every kid to have this experience in this play. This play, that the, the Missoula Children's Theater Company, they're radically inclusive. Any kid that shows up, they will figure out a way to get you in the play. God's kingdom is radically inclusive. Everybody is welcome. Everybody can play a part in God's kingdom. 
If you read the Gospels, you know that when Jesus was around, everyone was welcomed. Nobody was off limits for Jesus. The prostitute, the drunk, the poor, the sick, the tax collector, the Roman, the Jew, the woman, the child, they were all welcomed with Jesus. The kingdom of God is radically inclusive. We see that in Saul. The guy who maybe should never have come to faith is welcomed into the kingdom and used for the kingdom. With so much division in our church, I think it's easy to forget sometimes just how radically inclusive the kingdom of God truly is. I found this quote, and I think it speaks to this really well. It says this, God's kingdom extends a scandalously open invitation. As we've seen, it doesn't begin with the greatest, the righteous, the healthy, the wealthy, the aggressive, or the wise. It begins with the least, the sinners, the sick, the poor, the meek, and the children. Entry isn't on the basis of merit, achievement, of superiority, but rather it requires humility to think again, to become teachable like a child, and to receive God's forgiveness and reconciling grace. No one is off limits for God. He not only welcomes all people into his kingdom who are willing, but he uses anyone, no matter their history, no matter their uh, religious credentials, to advance his kingdom. And that is what we get to see in Saul. That is what we learn about God in this conversion of Saul. You see, Jesus' death on the cross levels the playing field. And throughout scripture, you can see God call to himself men and women who should not have been in those positions, who you would never guess would be active agents for God, whether it's Abraham or Moses or the prophets or Saul himself. But God's inclusive heart for all people sets this precedent for us that we are to live lives in this very manner, that our church is to be like this, radically inclusive for all people. The second character, Ananias. In Ananias, we see that God is always seeking reconciliation. You see, when you read the story and you know that God is all-powerful, you can begin to question, well, did he really need to use Ananias to go and lay hands on Saul to regain sight? Did it have to be Ananias? Couldn't he have sent an angel or couldn't it have been somebody else or couldn't he have just made those scales fall from Ananias' eyes himself? But when you know the story, when you read into the context, you learn that Ananias was a leader in the church in Damascus, and he was brought to lay hands on the vocal, on the most vocal opponent to the Christian faith. Certainly there were other ways that God could have done this, but his heart was about reconciliation. His heart was about putting these two men in the same place, uh, having Ananias lay his hands on this vocal opponent against the Christian faith and welcoming him into the family. It's this beautiful picture of reconciliation. And that God uses Ananias in that way, saying, nobody is off limits in my kingdom. You can be reconciled in this way. You see, reconciliation is a primary focus of all of God's activity in the world. And we have therefore been entrusted with this ministry. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, 5.18, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word, the ministry of reconciliation. So just as God is reconciling, this is our call as Christians, is to be agents of reconciliation, 
to prepare the way for the redemption of all things. This extends through all of our relationships with others and with the world around us, but also that we are agents for reconciliation in other people's relationships. That is our call. That is the ministry that has been given to us. I think Ananias, even though he questioned God in that moment, which I think any of us would have done, I think Ananias understood the heart of God. And so he faithfully and obediently moved into a reconciling posture with his enemy, Saul, and said, I will go, I will find him, I will lay hands on him, and I will pray for my brother. He starts that prayer, Brother Saul, how beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? The third main character, Jesus. Here's what we learn about God through Jesus in this story. We learn that only God, only Jesus Christ has the power to transform a human heart. Only Christ has the power to transform a human heart. Saul was changed after he had his encounter with Jesus. But again, knowing the story, you would have known that Saul would have already seen the growth and the dynamic, the, the, the dynamic uh, elements of the church in his time. He would have experienced the transcendent peace that Stephen had right before he was stoned. As Stephen is right there praying to God, he would have witnessed that. He would have seen the passion the desire, the trust that those first early Christians had, the way that they worshipped together, the way that they loved each other, and yet none of those things changed him. Only Jesus Christ could change him. Because only the power to transform, or the power to transform only rests in Christ and Christ alone. Saul, as we've said before, he changes his name to Paul and, and, and he goes on to write many of these letters to the church. And then to the church in Corinth, I believe, Paul is acutely aware of this fact that only Christ can transform. And he writes this, 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7, through 7, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes growth. I think Paul is looking back on his life. He's looking back into his own history and recognizing that only Jesus Christ can change a heart. That everything he experienced was because of the salvation that Christ had to offer. And that as he goes forward, as he was now a minister of the gospel, that it did not matter the words that he used in his gospel presentation or how clearly they were spoken, how powerful his message was because Christ was the one who would change human hearts. So he said, you can plan and somebody else can water, but Jesus is the one who causes growth. Jesus is the one who transforms. Our job as Christians is to get people in front of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our strategy for evangelism. That's our strategy for discipleship, to get people in front of Jesus Christ. How much better does that sound than coming up with the perfect program on Sunday afternoon or developing the most beautiful service that allows everybody to participate in equal ways? Our job is to get people in front of Jesus Christ. The only thing that we should be concerned with 
in our Sunday gatherings, in our small groups, in our homes, in our own lives, in our own relationships, is getting people in front of Jesus and allowing Jesus to transform. Let me conclude with this this morning. As we move through Acts, Saul will become Paul, as we said earlier. He becomes the main character of the book. So throughout the next couple of months, as we, as we move forward in the book of Acts, he's going to be the guy that we talk about most. We kind of follow the growth of the church through him and through his ministry. He does incredible things. He preaches the gospel in powerful ways. He encourages the church. He rebukes the church. It's, it's incredibly powerful to see the way that God moves through him. But we can't just focus on Paul, we need to always be aware of how is God moving through all of these characters? How is God moving throughout this whole book? Because God moves through everyone. We saw that this morning. We saw that the fact that he moves through Paul to show us how radically inclusive his kingdom is. That he moves through Ananias to show us that reconciliation is his heart and that he is a God that desires reconciliation. And we see that in the fact that Christ is the only one that has the power to transform and the power to change a heart. Let us remember that as we go. Would you stand with me as I read a benediction before we go? To the Son who redeems us and the Spirit who renews us and the Father who receives us, For so great is his love. Be gracious to us, bless us, and make your face shine upon us. Go in peace this week. You are dismissed.